0: Today's episode is brought to you by Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio. Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio offers a contemporary look at a traditional craft. Working as an artist, creating one-of-a-kind hooked rugs, Deanne also offers rug hooking kits, patterns, supplies, workshops, and lessons, both online at www.hookingrugs.com or at her studio in downtown Amherst, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Her original works are in the Canadian Museum of Civilization, the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, and many private and public collections. The author of seven books about rug hooking and creativity, Deanne has made her website, blog, and YouTube channels a beautiful resource for rug hookers internationally. Visit her at Hookingrugs.com and use the coupon code ABBY, that's A B B Y, all lowercase, to receive 15% off your first order. Thank you so much, Deanne. And now, here's the show. Episode 92 of the Walshy Naps Podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about the sewing and quilting industry with my guest, Pokey Bolton. Pokey Bolton was introduced to art quilting and the related needle arts in 1998, and ever since she took her first stitch, which was a fly, and embroidered her first motif, which was a spider, she's been entangled in this industry and doesn't envision herself getting free. Art quilting and mixed media have quite literally taken over her life, so much so that she left her doctoral program and full-time teaching job to found Quilting Arts Magazine, and later with John Bolton, Cloth Paper Scissors Magazine, as well as a line of books. After they sold their publishing business to Interweave, Pokey became the editorial director for the quilt and paper division at Interweave, and was founding host of Quilting Arts TV on PBS. In January of 2012, she joined Quilts, Inc., the parent company of International Quilt Festival and Quilt Market, and the newly founded position of Chief Creative Officer. A little over two years later, she founded Crafting a Life, a media and events company, based in Napa, Valley, California, offering media and boutique-style retreats. In January of 2016, she launched Craft Napa, an annual retreat held in downtown Napa. Craft Napa includes crafting and sewing, collage, quilting workshops, wine education, wine excursions, and an artist market. Polky Bolton, welcome. Thank you for having me, Abby. Thank you so much for talking with me. I'm really excited to hear your story and to hear some of your reflections on being in this industry for so long. So um, <laughs> when I was doing the uh, crazy amount of Google searching that I do and getting ready for a podcast, I mm-hmm. noticed that one of the most popular search terms that comes up for you um, in Google is Pokey Bolton, real name.
1: So what is your (laughs) real name and how did you come to be called Pokey? It's a very long name. My full name is Patricia Ann Pocahontas Chatham-Bolton. Pocahontas is my middle name. It is uh, my father's side of the family is from uh, Virginia. And it is uh, believed that we are somehow descendants of Pocahontas. And uh, my great grandmother, her name was Ann Pocahontas and I'm really named after her. It's been a name that's been passed down through the generations and I have always gone by pokey. Patricia just never really stuck for me. So (laughs) if people think it's a, it's a crazy story, it just so happens that my father, um, his first name was Dave and we had another uncle in the family whose name was Crockett. So my father's name was David Crockett Chatham. And so (laughs) to have a daughter, Pocahontas, um people love to get love that story and the fact that my younger brother, he's named after my father. So it's Pocahontas and Davy Crockett Jr. So <laughs> Okay,
0: that's the best answer to that question. Like I was totally <laughs> expecting you to say something like, Well, my name is Patricia, and when I was a kid, they thought it was cute to call me Pokey, but no, that's like the no. much,
1: much better answer. Well, and it gets worse because my dad's doctor um, years ago in Truckee, Tahoe, his name was Dr. Daniel Boone. So (laughs) 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 Uh, Americana, that's me.
0: That's fantastic. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up uh, just north of San Francisco um, in Marin County, San Rafael, to be specific, home of Dharma Trading Company. Um, But then I spent most, uh, probably most part of my life in the Boston area. Um, I went to college at Boston College and ended up staying there for at least 23 years. Wow. Um, And
0: were you always an artistic person? I mean, were you a maker as a kid and, you know, always doing artistic
1: things? I was a maker. Uh, I wouldn't say I was always a a successful maker. I've just always been drawn to making, um, especially for just kind of working through things i used to love to color i used to um i was really into horses growing up and i used to in a weird way be like a carpenter i used to make these horse jumps for my dog so my whole backyard i was con- constantly taking old wood and nails and making fake brick um jumps for my dog to jump over on the leash and a brush box fence and like all kinds of stuff That's so awesome. i i just loved making things and, mm-hmm. you know Um, and so when you
0: decided to go to college, were mm -hmm. you considering being an artist or did you have other plans?
1: No, my, my major, my undergrad major was actually, uh, English lit and I had a Slavic studies minor and I always felt in my heart, I would, I would love to get in the magazine business. Like that was my dream job. Um, it just so happened that I did land an internship my senior year of college at, um, a place in Charlestown called uh, atlantic they don't exist anymore, I don't believe, but Atlantic Publishing Group, APG. And I was uh, their advertising coordinator. It was a startup B2B uh, trade publication in the stock uh, broker industry, which I didn't have much love at all for the content. It didn't, it just wasn't, um, that wasn't a fit for me. But I I got to learn a little bit about the print world at that point, at that time. And, um, but then it, it just, being an advertising coordinator wasn't really my first love. And so I quit that job to take a teaching assistant job, making a whopping $12,500 a year <laughs> um, for a small private school for kids um, that had been placed out of public school systems um, for kids who were, uh, had pervasive developmental delay and um, kids on the autism spectrum, that, that kind of thing. And it was in JP, sorry, that Jamaica Plain for, for those your people listeners, don't in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people don't <laughs> Boston. Sorry. And it was just a, Oh, it was, the, it was such an interesting time in my life, you know, working a number of jobs and then, um, just working with, with kids who are nonverbal and, um, their families. And, uh, it just, from then, I they said, you know, we'd like to offer you a head teaching position, but you'd have to get into a master's program. So then, uh, Boston College had a grant program in their um, deaf blindness uh, program, you know, for for basically getting a master's degree and working with children with intensive disabilities. And that's so that became like my real love for, I don't know, seven eight years. Um,
0: okay, so did you go and get that master's degree?
1: I did. I did. I got the master's and then I got heavily involved in, um, inclusion and basically creating I chaired, um, for people who don't, um, aren't familiar with individualized education plans. I basically coordinated, um, programs to, for kids were for kids who it made sense to stay in a public school setting and develop and learn next to kids who are typically developing, putting together programs for them for speech, physical therapy, occupational therapy, social worker, um, and just kind of cobbled together programs that really met that child's needs so that they could um, be with their typically developing peers if, if it made sense for them. And I, know,
0: um, I know having worked in, um, in the public school system in, the, uh, in various different settings, and also I, I did spend a summer working at a camp for kids with, Um, profound disabilities um that it is wonderful work and it can also be you can get almost like empathy fatigue I don't know if that's a word but when you feel tired from um just being so empathetic and wanting to improve people's lives I don't know if you
1: felt that oh absolutely I think for me um especially for families for parents who have a child with an intensive disability who they know they're gonna have to worry for all of their their lives as parents and worrying about, you know, how is this kid gonna have a, a good quality, meaningful life? How can I make sure that happens? And then to be in a public school setting when all these when other kids are are learning at a much quicker pace, they're able to enjoy social relationships, um, it's, it is hard for those parents. And I think for me, I, that was, you know, I spent so much time at parents' home, just talking, going to coffee, like making sure they're feeling okay with how the program's going, you know, lots of meetings. So I did, and I, I I actually was so interested in this um, that I, I applied and I got accepted to Boston University in their education program to get a doctorate. Um, and I, I was tired (laughs) because I was was going to school. I I was working full time in Newton public schools at the time. And then I was, uh, going to night school, you know, classes were three hours long, seven to 10, six to nine, sometimes on, uh, uh, a Saturday. Um, and it just, I, 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 I got a little fatigued on it, but it's still some, it's something that I want now, now 20 years later, I've really thought about, and we can talk about this later in the podcast, how I can, how into today and in my work today, how I can somehow marry, um, what my, what my passion is just because I left that field doesn't mean I'm not passionate about it.
0: Right. No, that's absolutely There's, true. And, and we, yeah. um, we do share that we both worked in the Newton public schools obviously yeah. at different times, but, um, when we discovered that, that was pretty neat. And, yeah. um, Yes. And I agree with you that even if you do change careers, the thing that drew you to that first one is still with you. And absolutely. Um, and it's still something that can be part of your life, even in, if it's in a somewhat different way later on. So, um, okay. So, so somewhere down this road, um, while you were working and learning, um, you heard about art quilting and I'm curious where that first art quilting sort of experience took place and what, what sure. it was about.
1: Well, I, uh, was on a a holiday break from both my, um, my studies and from teaching. And I went into, I I just said, I got to do something with my hands. I just need to work with color and do something with my hands over this holiday break. So I went to the Joann's and Dedham and I walked around the entire store and I said, I'm either going to teach myself how to knit or I'm going to teach myself how to quilt. And those bolts of fabric um, that were just sprawling along the long wall in the store, just really just grabbed me. So I went and I got a Fons and Porter book on, uh, quilting, a big thick book that I still have, um, today, the complete guide to quilting, uh, a ruler, a cutting mat, um, some thread. And I just went nuts. I just bought a ton of fabric and they said, well, how much do you want? And I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know how much to cut. And I, uh, brought it all home and was, read that book voraciously and i turned the dining room in our little house in Newton into a, uh, a quilting studio and, um, took my mother's, she gave me some money for Christmas and bought myself a very basic, basic singer sewing machine. And I made a quilt. And so it's, it's somewhere in storage. It's, it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. I had no sense of color. Um, and the piecing's horrid as is the binding, but, um, I loved doing the quilt. I loved the quilting, but I didn't, I wasn't sure traditional quilting was really where it was for me. So then I learned about embellished quilting and the crazy quilting phase. And I found a group, um, out of Pepperell. There was a woman who had a store called the Pepperell Pepper Patch and she converted a, uh, (coughs) like a, a pharmacy. It was a big, big space downtown and it was all embellishments, silk ribbon. Beads, buttons of all kinds, um, just some really interesting things that you could stitch onto quilts, embroidery threads, decorative threads. It just, oh, when I would able, when I was able to go on a weekend and just drive up to Pepperell and just take a basket and go through that store, it was so much fun. And that there was a little group that met and we did what was called a year-long color swap. And so we used the color wheel as a study. And we uh, stuffed a Ziploc bag of fabric in a certain hue, and we divvied it out. And that was, and it could be a silk dubioni, It could be a velvet. It could be a cotton fabric. It could be a brocade. It could be anything. And so I got very involved. I learned all about the color wheel doing that year-long swap with about 12 other people. It was fascinating. And uh, I got really into kind of innovative piecing, crazy quilting, I bought Judith Baker Montano's books. Um, she had published a, at least two at that point with C&T. And, um, I read a book that Penny McMorris had written many, many years ago on the history of crazy quilting. And I just went down the rabbit hole. And I, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun? There's no magazine on the market that focuses on Crazy quilting.
0: And had you looked, I mean, I so you had this sort of idea way back
1: in college, like magazines are
0: neat, you know, and wouldn't it yeah. be neat to have a magazine or to work in a magazine to the point that you had taken a job that wasn't even ideal just to be sort of in that setting. And then you found this,
1: you know, clearly very passionate hobby.
0: And did you mm-hmm. go to the magazine rack and were like, where's my magazine? Oh, yeah.
1: I did. I did. I went everywhere. And, you know, I studied all of the, you know, the, the, the national magazines, obviously I was a subscriber to quilters newsletter. I just, I couldn't gobble them up enough. Um, I did see one magazine that was out of Australia. Um, you know, what was it called? Inspirations. I think it was, and it covered a little bit more of the hand embroidery and, and back, back in the, in the late nineties, silk ribbon embroidery was a huge and, um, they did a lot of like smocking and silk ribbon embroidery, but there was no, um, there was no magazine devoted to embellished quilting and crazy quilting. And so I just thought, wouldn't it be fun to try and put something out, just have a little desktop thing. Um, and so called it. Yeah. So, so, okay. So here you are,
0: you're enrolled in this program, you're working, you know, and you have this passionate hobby that's growing and growing. So when mm-hmm. was the moment when you were like, "All right, enough is enough. I'm going to switch. I'm going to like, you know, yes. move out of one thing and dive into this other thing." Was there like a pivot Good.
1: moment? There? Yes, there was. It was in um, the end, of 1999, early 2000. I just thought, you know, uh, I'm a little burnt out going to school. Um, I I did get fatigue, empathy fatigue, and uh, studies fatigue, and I just thought I am just loving, I am loving learning about the craft of quilting. Like I just, it consumed me. And so I talked it over um, with John and I, you know, looked to see if I could get some startup money, um, not very much. And met with a printer up in New Hampshire. And we had a very small print run um, for the first issue, which was heavily, heavily focused all but one article was was dedicated to crazy quilting um but i quickly quickly learned that if i was going to if this was going to be a sustained sustainable magazine if it was going to continue i could not just simply focus on crazy quilting it's just too small of a market um but when it when it first came out i really only expected it to be a little desktop desktop publishing deal um, ship people their magazines and in, in mailers, go to the post office every day. Uh, but then I got a call and at my Sally Murray, my sister-in-law was um, just donating her time and helping me when she took her kids to school a few hours a day, every day. Um, someone called and said, what are your wholesale terms? <laughs> and I put the person on hold. And I'm like, Sally, what are our wholesale terms? <laughs> so we were scurrying to try and figure all that out. I mean, it was a very, very organic. Um, how are you
0: getting the word out about this? In other words, how did someone even know to call you about that? Were you good advertising question. in the back of other magazines? I, mean, I
1: I did a few things. I went to, before the magazine even came out, I went to uh, the International Quilt Festival in Houston. And I had t-shirts made that had a, um, I can't even remember the saying on them, but I had, I had t-shirts that I was giving out so I was taking pre-order subscriptions. And if you pre-ordered the magazine, I said, this is what my plan is. This is my editorial focus. And just on the the basis alone that it was going to be a crazy quilting magazine, um, the embellishments, um, as I said, silk ribbon embroidery was very popular. But so was embellished quilting in the late 90s. And just on that alone, I got pre-orders and I got um, – people were uh, trusting that I was going to deliver on their subscriptions. And I had little pins, too, that people – things that said, uh, little buttons that said, I don't exaggerate. I embellish. Um, Love it. And I, another one was give me all your buttons and nobody will get hurt. So, and then I had like another one that said, stitch this. And then it had a little like Chevron stitch on it. Um, so I did little marketing things like that. And so there was a basis for it when I, when I first, when I first produced it, um, it was, it was going to people's houses pretty much right away. And then um, I also tried to get some relationships going when I did go to that first, uh, quilt festival, especially while I, cause they were producing a lot of, in addition to thread, they were producing a ton of silk, um, ribbon embroidery. And I said, look at, you can have the back cover if you want. I said, I just looking for someone to just believe me and give me that a little bit of an endorsement of what I'm trying to do. And they did. Um, so then I started getting, um, by the second issue, So that the first issue came out in the spring of 2001. The second issue, I definitely, definitely needed to change the focus, expand the focus um, and included art quilting. And um, it was a quarterly publication back then. And so I had a lot of time. It was great because I had enough downtime to try and plan the issues, figure out photography. I was just using a local photographer uh, in Maynard. Um, To shoot to shoot the work and I was also accepting film back then (laughs) Um, People slides and things and I would get them drum scanned um, To get into print Yeah, so that's 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 kind of how it started and I resigned from um, my my job as a um, inclusion facilitator in the Newton Public Schools in June I I saw that year through um, June of 2000 I want to take a minute now to
0: hear from our sponsor, Deanne Fitzpatrick of Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio.
2: I'm Deanne Fitzpatrick from Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio. We make rug hooking kits, patterns, and designs, but the real thing that I do, Abby, is I work as an artist and I create one-of-a-kind hooked rugs. So I make every day, I sit down pretty much and hook a rug myself. I use those designs uh, that I create as an artist and I choose some of them and we make patterns and kits and supplies and we dye wool and we sell wool all over North America. We sent, we sell it from our website, hookingrugs.com. And, um, we just, try to really inspire people to create beauty every day. I mean that's part of the motto of the studio. And that's how we do it is through rug hooking. And it's a very old, old craft. The rug hooking that I do is the, is one of the crafts that's thought to be indigenous to North America. So it's something that's been around since about the 1830s and it started on the East coast. Traditionally, people use like burlap bags, right? So what would happen was they'd use old clothes and burlap bags. Uh, that the feed came in. So like, that's what my, say, my father's mother would have done. And then she'd hook her family's old clothes, which were mostly woolen at the time, right? Well, we have a three minute video on YouTube that teaches you how to hook rugs so that's how long it takes really we teach people in the studio every day it takes three to five minutes to learn really if there's one stitch it's not like knitting right where you have to learn all these stitches and and all the patterns you know I liken it to coloring right I feel like that's what I do for a living is I color I'm so lucky like I used to love to color when I was a kid and you know how when you were a kid you'd outline something sort of heavy and then you'd fill it in well that's kind of what you do with rug hooking and there's only one stitch. So what you do is you take the piece of wool under and put it underneath your frame, and you have the hook in the other hand. And it's not a latch hook. It's more like a crochet hook. It has a little wooden handle. And you bring that piece of wool up. You bring your end up, and then you bring it up loop by loop. And once you learn that stitch, that's the only stitch that you need to know. To and And with that stitch, I've made, like, I've made you know, rugs that are 12 feet by six feet. And I've made rugs that are six inches by six inches.
0: Check out Deanne at hookingrugs.com. And now back to my
1: conversation with Pokey.
0: I see. And so then,
1: then I just went full time on the magazine.
0: And you were working the magazine, Quilting Arts. You, it was sort of headquartered in your house.
1: It was. We had moved to Stowe and had an in-law unit above the garage. Um, so it was, a, it was a truly a mom and pop business. Um, all the magazines were stored in the garage. Um, and then we also did a, a calendar, like a wall calendar too, where we, um, so, uh, basically it was a reader's contest where they could do a block. And then we had a bunch of people come in and choose which blocks were their favorite. And that became the wall calendar and all of that was stored in the garage. And it just got to be too much. We had a couple of, um, employees coming to the house to 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 work and we thought you know we, I think we need to move this um so we found a a place downtown Stowe. It used to be a gift shop it was called Apple Blossoms it was adorable and it has it had a real history to it um it used to be a uh like a sleigh as in like you know a snow sleigh repair shop in the late 1800s oh my gosh that is
0: it,
1: cool it is so cool and actually in my room the 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 my office is where the, um, original, uh, steel, I don't know what you call it, but basically it bends the steel to actually make the sleigh. And where the, um, where the French doors were that led out to the, to the road, um, it actually used to be a ramp where the sleighs would just (laughs) come in and get fixed and slide right down. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is the
0: coolest. So that's where your office was. And, um, and was John
1: working a different job or did he come and join he you? He was, you? he was, he had another job. Actually, uh, he was a commercial real estate appraiser and he had a, a business with someone else, um, in Newton Highlands. And he also was getting his law degree at Suffolk at night. So he was busy doing what, what, what I'd been doing for a while and that was working full time. Um, and then going to school at night. The difference with him was that he had he wasn't working a mm-hmm. and I mean, he was running a business. Um, but it was his background is was real estate, residential and commercial um, appraising.
0: OK, so when you started quilting arts, though, it was really you and your idea, your passion, um, both for the magazine business and for crazy quilts and then art quilts that started it. And then at some point he came to help you. Is that
1: right? That's, that is correct. It was around the third issue. Um, what happened was is a very good thing happened in the sense that, um, we were getting our, our doors knocked on for distribution. Um, and Barnes and Noble had found out about it. They wanted it. The Walmart wanted it, which back in the day. Well, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, I, it was, this was quickly growing and my, strength is creative and content. I would not say that, uh, the business side was my forte. So John and I talked about it and, uh, he basically sold his part of the real estate business to his partner and he came on board and simultaneously when all of this was going on, nine eleven 11 happened. Oh. Um, which was obviously you live in Boston. It was, uh,
0: it was horrific and every for everyone. Yeah.
1: For everyone. And it was a very scary time. Um and it was a it was I think though it was positive. It was a blessing, because just around that time, John came on and took over the business side of um of the publishing business. And then and then, you know, we were able to grow it. But that was a really we were actually away um at one of the Mancuso shows he was, he actually was, I remember this, he stayed up, he had um, a class and I went down to visit some family in Virginia and we were going to meet, um, in Pennsylvania. And, uh, during that, the, 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 uh, the towers had been hit. So it was, we were just that, that show, that Mancuso show. Wow. that was, everybody was just understandably. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So freaked out.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So, so he joined you, and then you launched a second magazine, um, Cloth, years, Paper, Scissors.
1: Yeah, a few years later, after we moved to the new, um, the building downtown, just kind of, it just kind of made sense. It just was like, okay, quilting art is doing well. Um, let's just, you know, I was really interested in my own personal interest, also, is mixed media, um, collage, art journaling, all those things, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a really kind of playful magazine, um, and call and, and one of our employees, you know, we were all trying to name it. And Jerry said, you know, let's, what about cloth, paper, scissors? And I'm like, that's it. That's perfect. <laughs> so, uh, you know, at the time Somerset studio was, um, or the Stampington folks had published Somerset studio it had been a very established magazine, um, but I just kind of felt there was space in the market for something else as well. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of quilters, a lot of the artists, they do both. They do. Yeah. Um, it, the, the one, one craft complements the other in terms of creating and, and trying to come up with new ideas and interpreting ideas. So right. it was great because I could draw from a pool. There was, you know, certain people who were, who were art quilters, who also dabbled in encaustic in work or, um, art journaling or the altered altered work altered books and all that was so big back in around 2004 2005 2006 so um and
0: um my my birds were featured in cloth paper scissors way back then i think it might have been two yes. thousand seven seven or six um kate uh, wrote an article about them and it was wonderful for me so yeah. <laughs> i oh, thought that's like, good it was great yeah it was a really nice. a great opportunity so um, okay, so and did you do any other media, or was it just those two very popular magazines?
1: We did those magazines, and then uh, we wrote, we published three books. The first was called Free Expressions with a quilter by the name of Robbie Joy Eclo. She used to write our column um, in the back of the magazine called Goddess of uh, Last Minute, and she has just a real sense of humor and a real. Oh, um, narrative in her quilts. And, uh, so I said, do you want to write a book about your process? And so we worked together and she came out with that book. It did very well. Um, and then we wrote a book, uh, with Beryl Taylor. It was a mixed media book because Beryl Taylor, she also has a very strong aesthetic, a very strong, um, presence in her mixed media, the, the world of mixed media. And Um, so we published that book and it, it, and we, oh, we had the best photographer for that one. It just, everything looked beautiful in it. Um, and then we published a book with Carrie Bresenhan. She, um, basically authored and compiled the, um, the journal quilt project, which was very popular, a big draw to, um, for the art quilting crowd at the international quilt festivals. And basically it was that the project was, Um, it was inspired by an online group called the quilt art list. And so people would make a journal page eight and a half by 11 of a quilt, one quilt a month. And then you would submit all 12 quilts to kind of a year in the life, the chronicling of an art quilter in a year's time. Um, and some people did some very interesting things. They would do a very specific design study or a stitch study, a color study. Some people just chronicled what was going on with them. Every month, one that was very poignant was um, somebody's husband who had succumbed to Parkinson's disease and what it was like month to month to month until he'd passed away and so there was a lot of um, it was a great community project. It got a lot of people involved for people who were scared to make a large quilt, this was a perfect size for them, a perfect place to play and to have your quilts, if you're, if you're even like a, a newbie. Um, to have your quilts being showcased at the international quilt festival was, you know, really fun for them. Yeah,
0: so and we, then also we, in this book, right?
1: Yeah, so so this book it weighed a ton. I think it weighed over four pounds. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> it was a thick one. Um, but that was a that was a a good collaboration. And so, what was
0: the imprint? Was this like Quilting Arts as an imprint of these? You know, who was the publisher of these books?
1: Quilting Arts LLC was the publisher. Okay.
0: got it. Okay, yeah. so you had two magazines, um, and then you had these three books and, um, and so what came next? Was the, the sale to interweave next or was the quilting arts TV show next?
1: The sale to interweave was next. They had approached us, um, and Linda Ligon, who, um, had founded interweave had approached us along with, um, Aspire Media, who was the, the, the backing, the people who actually bought interweave. Um, to see if we were interested and I I kind of was like, no, I, you know, I want to keep doing, I want to keep going where we're going, but um, it was just a time that it made sense for us to consider it. And so we met with them, we did all the fun due diligence and boy, <laughs> if I never have to do due diligence again, I will be a very happy person.
0: Would you explain a little bit what that means for people who've never been through a sale? of sure. a company?
1: It's, it's, um, basically, so say, say you have something, you have a product and that company sees value in your product. They want to buy your product and they need to do an estimate for how much they think your product is worth and the eventual return that they're going to get on their money. And so there's this, oh, and I can't break this acronym down the EBITDA, um, earnings before interest. Something taxes something okay um, I should I should know this so well I just I think I've just blocked it out but uh, so basically you need so they say okay well we want to offer you X amount of money for your business but we need to go through due diligence and so you know we need to see how much inventory do you have do you how many of these magazines do you have each edition what is your book inventory what is your rent for the property what is your How many printers do you have? What are the serial numbers on your printers? How many computers do you have? What's your monthly cost for postage? What are you paying your employees? So Uh, they're
0: basically valuing you.
1: They are valuing you and you are also coming through um, saying that you are being truthful in what your assets are when you sell them, um, the company. So it's basically, it's a vetting Mm-hmm. it's it's evaluation it's um but it is intense and it is uh you really have to want to be able to sell something um and think about what you're going to do afterwards to go through a, a process like that you know there's a ton- so many businesses in the business world they're doing due diligence all the time but um for for me it was an emotional thing because this was uh my baby yeah and I wanted to make sure that if we went through with this, that interweave was going to give me enough leeway to keep going with what I wanted to do.
0: Right. And so and you, I, you did stay, I mean, so some people uh-huh. oftentimes with the sale of the business, um, you know, they'll say, we want to keep you on and, and then it lasts for a year or two. And then it kind of falls apart because, you know, the leadership changes and the direction changes and it's sort of hard to stick around. I don't know how you felt like, You know, you did stay on and you went on to do some more things with the company before leaving. And I don't know if the feeling sort of shifted for you or not.
1: To me, it was very important um, to whom I was selling the business. And Linda Ligon, I have the utmost respect for her. I think she has always been a very um, truthful and grounded person, but has a vision she really in, welcomes other people's perspectives. She wants to create, she wants to innovate. And I, I remember once I had a lunch with her, I'm like, I just don't know if I want to do this. And I said, I said, and I probably got a little teary at the lunch. And I said something like, this is my child. This is, this is everything. This is the, this is years and years of hard work that I've put into this. And she said, well, it is. She's like, it always will be. She's like, just think of me as the aunt. Um. And I just. Yeah. It was really thoughtful. And so I've always considered her a very um, inspiring mentor. Um, okay. So
0: so you stayed on and you went on then to host, be the founding host of Quilting mm-hmm. Arts TV, which was a national um, PBS program. And Correct. you helped to produce more than 150 episodes of that program. And I'm just wondering – what that was like for you, sort of what you learned about TV um, in mm-hmm. doing that, because it doesn't sound to me like you came from a TV or even from a performance background. No. So no, I'm assuming I think, you learned some things in the process.
1: I did. I had, well, I went to hosting school for a day. For a um, day. Great. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I, for, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't such an unnatural progression or, or a shift. Because I was still uh, playing, like for a host of a magazine, you're an editor. You're trying to help someone's work shine. You're trying to 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 help them convey their message, help them impart their techniques that they're trying to teach to people. So for me, from a content standpoint, it wasn't it wasn't so different. When it comes to the cameras being turned on and the makeup, and you gotta watch your clothing and all that kind of stuff, that was certainly an education. Um, but to me, it was so fun to do because there's nothing like having, inviting a guest to be on, um, you know, talking them through the segment, let's hit this, let's hit this, let's hit this. We have to make sure we include these quilts, but when they walk onto the set, we've got everything sequentially laid out (laughs) and they're nervous as heck. Understandably. I've been a guest on a, a few other shows and I know, I know what it's like, but for them to get through that segment and, you know, I would say it's a wrap. You did great. And they're like, what? It's over. We're done. I'm like, yeah, you did a great job. She's like, oh my God, that was so much fun. Can we do that again? <laughs> you know, it's like, so it was always such a positive, um, experience for me because everybody walked away excited and happy and they would go, you know, let everybody know that they're going to be on a certain episode when it's going to air. and um, It that that was a lot of fun for me. And I'm wondering,
0: I mean, this is jumping ahead just a little bit, and we are going to keep going back to that and go in sequential order. But I just wondered, out of curiosity, whether you considered sort of continuing on after that was over by doing something as like a YouTube series, because by then, you know, YouTube, or maybe a little ways after YouTube was really picking up steam and is a way right. to do TV, and I think about quilting and things like that. And I just wondered exactly. whether if you enjoyed doing it, if you ever, if the thought ever crossed your mind, hey, I could keep doing this and just produce it myself, or if that was sort of like, yes. not really.
1: Well, yes, yes, and no, because a couple things happened. Number one is um, I had switched. It, it was, it was, I guess it was around 2011. I I uh, resigned from Quilting Arts, and I um, accepted a position at Quilt Inc., um, based in Houston to, for the, for the chief creative officer position. And I was at that time balancing out, still hosting TV, but I think my, with my commitment to Quilt Inc., um, I hadn't at that time really thought about, um, media in that sense of, of, of continually doing a YouTube show or, um,
0: or doing something that you were producing yourself because, you right know, obviously quilting arts was something you were producing yourself um but then it had been become part of this much larger company and then QuiltSync is a much larger company that you were joining um so i just was curious whether you thought i do it
1: myself it, yeah well and that's something i'm thinking about now to be honest but uh actually what happened was interweave it was produced by kathleen Stull. i was i ran re- i helped i got all the content together and the guests but uh at the time interweave was it let's see what it was knitting daily knitting daily was on um beads bobbles and jewels which I believe is still on and quilting arts so um and then a, I think a couple other shows here and there so but yeah I think where I was at the time I wasn't I wasn't thinking about it but I you know now that I have my own business again I'm thinking about a lot of things so. right yeah
0: yeah that's is interesting to think through like um the sort of whether you're on your own or whether you're part of a, a larger company and how people's careers yeah. kind of go in and out of those, um, yes. those environments. So, okay. So you were at quote sync, you were there, mm-hmm. they, they kind of, it sounds like kind of came up with this, um, position of chief creative yes. officer and you were there for a few years. Um, and do you want to say anything about the time that you were there?
1: Sure. Um, I certainly learned quite a lot. I had some event experience in the past because we had done these uh, retreats that were uh, called Create that were around the country. And uh, obviously I'd known about I'd been going to cl- uh, Quilt Market and Quilt Festival since, I don't know, 99. Um, so it was, it's, it was exciting to be on the other side of, of of the job to to help see what it takes to run a show of that size um and to 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 be (laughs) one room away from all of those quilts um and to see the quilts come in i mean i thought it was great to see 10 15 20 quilts for each issue of quilting arts but to see that many quilts come in at once and um to be a part of it and to really understand what it takes to put on a show of that um grandeur was um it was a wonderful learning experience um for me uh a different, different set of circumstances than, um, you know, what what I'd come from. I think for me, I had a perspective of running my own company, which I, I'm so grateful that I did for as long as I did. Then being a part of a much bigger company, which was Interweave, with multiple offices around the country, where it was um, more and more so very important to meet certain numbers, for lack of a better um, term, you know, obviously when you're, when you're backed by private equity, you've got to hit certain marks, um, to get for basically those investors to get their return on the investment. So that was such an education to me, but then also to work at another company that wasn't necessarily as big, um, personnel wise, but what they put out, um, in terms of the the quilt shows was, was a learning experience.
0: Right. Absolutely. And so, um, so then when you left, uh, Claude Sink, you moved to Napa, California. And I wondered yes. why you chose Napa. I mean, Napa is obviously very beautiful. It's wine country. And
1: well, I think I, I think it was kind of time for me to go back home. Um, Napa is not far at all from where I grew up. Uh, I just love the, the aesthetic here, the feeling here, the lifestyle here. And I thought, for people in this industry, for people who enjoy quilting, the demographic of sewists, of um, people in the mixed media worlds, I thought, what a better way to maybe share this with them and figure out a way where um, we can have meaningful, um, concentrated retreats in, in in a very in a very inspiring setting.
0: Okay, so um, the idea was to have retreats. In other words. You yes. knew when you left Quilts Inc. that the next chapter was going to be about events, but was and was going to be about quilts and mixed media, but was not going to be, you know, sort of exactly what you'd done in the past, but instead it was going to be in person retreats. And I'm wondering, I mean, for me, as we are more and more online and right. the industry really becomes much more saturated online, I feel like I'm seeing a resurgence, and it could just be from my perspective, of um of in-person meetups and the meaning behind those where people want to go spend a weekend or go to conferences, go to quilt con, whatever it might be, right. and meet one another and have an experience together around their passion of making quilts. And so
1: I wondered whether you were seeing that or what was the impetus around creating a retreat pretty much everything you just said. I mean, I think with the online education, it's, 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 it's a great way for somebody to learn something, but it's not a great way to build community. It's not, it's not necessarily a great way to build community. Um, I think, uh, two things. One is, um, I did want to create an ambiance where people could, what, for whatever reason that they wanted to get a, want to get away, whether it's just to be away with, um, your friends and, and, Enjoy an intensive retreat and learn something together, or whether you're going through something personally and you need to take away that time for yourself um, to 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 just center yourself, um, but also to network. Because I feel, and I have felt as I've been part of this industry, um, that networking is so so important. Um, and I feel like some th- some some entities don't necessarily that's not one of their, um, that's not a focus. And so I thought, you know, especially with craft Napa, which is an annual retreat that I started in, uh, January of 2016, I really wanted to start, um, I picked a time of the year where I thought people could set the tone, um, and get together, put away all the holiday, <laughs> de- put away all the holiday decorations, um, and get to work, focus on, whatever craft it is that you want to love, but do it in a community um, supportive environment where artists can help one another and kind of launch, launch that year.
0: Okay. So tell
1: us what craft Napa
0: is about. You've had two retreats. You had the one in the start of 2016 and then again in 2017. So if someone's like, Hmm, that sounds fantastic. I could learn about art and wine and be with other people who are like minded and maybe learn from some of the best artists out there. So what, what is the weekend? Is it a weekend and what is it like? Like who's there? What are the classes?
1: Sure. It's a, it's four days. Um, it's, uh, it's held in January next year. It'll be January 10th through the 14th. And it's basically classes. I, I looked at a lot of, um, space in the Valley. If I wanted to have a retreat, not at my own art barn, but somewhere where I could have multiple classes running simultaneously and I really liked the layout of the embassy suites in down specifically the one in downtown Napa, because it just the way it's structured with the way the meeting rooms are structured with a central fountain court area. Um, it really lends itself to community and being, people being able to mix and mingle out of their classes. So there's um, eight classes that run every day, varying from uh fabric painting to screen printing to art journaling to watercolor work to collage to studying art history to free motion quilting to art quilting innovative piecing I mean it kind of runs the gamut this last time we had 12 teachers with 33 classes um, over the over the four-day period and we mixed it up with a, a wine blending event called Blend Your Own Vintage. And um, a vintner comes in, and basically, we break everybody up. So you don't really, you may not know who you're sitting with at your table. And each table comes up with a name, and you're given um, certain wines a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Merlot, um, a Cab Franc. And um, basically, you're given beakers, and you learn how to blend wine and you come up with a with a blend that you think tastes the best and then there's a blind tasting with judges there's a judge from each table and they pick the winning vintage and then that gets bottled with the label craft napa you know 2016 2017 2018 and um the next morning you have a bottle is available to everybody from the the winning blend that is but so cool it is really fun i mean it's just it's a fun time for bonding, and, and in the past couple of years, I've had it on the last night, and I've learned I need to have that on the first night. If not, everybody—it's—it's it's a little pricey. It's ninety dollars, but um, uh, that's that's wine country number one. It's just things are just expensive here, but it's a it's a really fun fun team building um, exercise, and uh, you get to learn learn what you know a little bit about wine
0: yeah that's great. And I do think having whatever sort of um, icebreaker kind of event that you're gonna have to have it right away um, mm-hmm. is a really good idea. We've been talking, exactly it's something I've been talking about with people um, at QuiltCon and elsewhere um, just to have that right away. So you have a sort of structured way to get to know the people around you. yes um, and then you've also. So you've got this art barn, which I want to talk a little bit about your art barn because I've been following on Facebook as it's been, um, you know, getting toward completion and then was completed. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. And I also think what's neat about it is that it's not only a place for um, the classes or events that you're, you know, teaching at or organizing necessarily, but you're gonna be having a guest, um, Denise Schmidt will be teaching in the yes. barn at a different event. So so explain a little bit how that will work.
1: Sure. So um I wanted to build a barn um that was obviously in a you know, had a had beautiful views, had a a, a wet studio for wet work, um, that would lend itself to to small retreats. And when I say small, I'm not I'm talking like eight to ten people. Um for Denise, I think there's going to be eleven plus twelve me. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm definitely going to be a student. Uh, but I just wanted a very intimate, small, small setting um, where people could get away and and work on something for one, two, three days, four days. And uh, so I had I had some classes here during Craft Napa. So there, <coughs> there there were a couple of classes that were held. Here And I also wanted to make sure that the garage doors were made of glass and that they could open because that just expands the space, which is perfect for surface design work um, and for fabric dyeing and, and that sort of thing. I've used the, the barn is where my office is. It's, it's, it's where my working studio is. It's also where we photographed um, the book, our first book, Playful Fabric Printing. Which but it's should also, say
0: is, is you're also publishing again, and that
1: yes. is the book that you
0: um, recently put out, and it's under the Crafting a Life um, LLC. Yes, LLC that is imprint. Okay.
1: So, uh, but then you know, Quilcon reached out to me, the the M- MQG folks, um, and I have enjoyed. Uh, working with Heather Grant in the past. And she, she said, you know, what if we, what if we collaborated and did something like this? And I thought, you know, as long as, you know, if we keep it small, um, you know, and, and get some great talent here, I'd love to, I'd love to explore it. I mean, I think that's, that's, what's been so fun for me is running my own business again, is I, you know, just play and see what, See what sticks, see what's going to take if, you know, just, you can be nimble enough to try things out.
0: Yeah. One of the things I was just going to say is about being nimble. So there's no bureaucracy. Um, no. And there's no nobody saying you have to meet the numbers for the private equity partners. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can say, yes, that sounds like an interesting collaboration to try. Or, you know, no, I don't think I want to go in that direction. But in the end, you get to make that decision, which is both risky and a little scary, but also very freeing.
1: It is. And it's just, it's just, it's exactly where I want to be uh, right now. And um, so when Heather said, well, we've got, you know, Denise Schmitz on board. And I thought, what? (laughs) I got super excited. And um, so, yeah, she's coming in June and it's, uh, looks like it's, it's sold out, so.
0: That's great. Um, so clearly it was the right, right thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's neat. And and maybe there will be, you know, future collaborations like that or events that can yes. be, take place. I mean, obviously the art barn's on your personal property. So it's mm-hmm. not something that's open for visitors um, yeah. But with a planned event like this. It could be really nice because it is fully outfitted and it's in this beautiful setting
1: that's ideal for a getaway. It is. And, and what I do, t- it is. And, I'm also in talks with other folks to come, um, and lead some very small retreats. And then oftentimes on Sundays, I've got a local group of, um, fiber artists that I met through the Napa, uh, quilt guild who I just gotten real friendly with a few of them. And some of them came to craft Napa and, you know, I'll just email them and say, Hey guys, do you want to come over this afternoon? I'm kind of playing with a new technique. And so they came over, I don't know, two, three weeks ago and, you know, it was great because they're. A lot of them are in the wine business, so they'll come over <laughs> with a nice bottle of wine. Right. I'll get I'll get the cheese and crackers out, and, you know, we just really enjoy a Sunday afternoon um, together quilting.
0: That's great. And so I just want to return for a second to this book, um, sure. of Fabric Printing. I'm wondering how that came about, that you were able to publish a book, and whether you um, have plans to work with other authors to yes. publish books in the future.
1: Yes. Well, uh I was very honored to work with um, Melanie Testa and Carol Soderland. They are masters in what they do. Um, Melanie is a graduate from FIT and just has a really strong um, artistic sense, um, design sense and as does Carol, and Carol is such a color expert. I mean, she no one can mix color like Carol can for dyes. And when they, um, they did have a manuscript, it was something that they were in the works with another publisher. It didn't, um, come to fruition with them. And so when I found that out, I'm like, Hey, (laughs) do you want to talk about this? And so I, about a year after that, they said, yeah, we can talk to you about it. And time went by and I built my art barn and this and that, but I thought, why not try it? I said, I know, you know, this, Publishing, as you well know, Abby, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, um, is is not a book publishing is not an easy business. it's It's a risk. Um, but when you have content, like must have content, content that has to see the light of day, if you don't publish it, you're doing such a disservice. <coughs> and and I just thought, let's try it. And so we did. and it just came out last month. Um, and it's it's doing well and I, and I I have a lot of faith that it's going to continue to do really well. It's just got um, anything that if you want to design fabric, if you want to learn about service design techniques, if you want to see if you can come up with a collection for your own quilts or to see if you want to take it to a, um, a fabric manufacturer to to make to become a fabric designer, um, this this book has is chock full of information for that.
0: Excellent. So and are um, you considering doing more books in the future? Are you going to take yes, it really I,
1: slow or do you have like a long-term plan to me? Well, I have it in my mind. I'm just not sure <laughs> if I, you know, I'm really watching the industry right now. Okay. I'm watching trends. I'm watching what other publishers are doing. Obviously for me, if the content I've, if I'm really, really excited about the content, it's not like I I need to nail out, six books a year or 10 bucks a year or anything like that. It's got to be something that just, I know will resonate with the market and it has to resonate with me because um, I want to be able to put in all that energy um, and uh, resources into it to make it to be the best it can be. And I, what's also important to me too, is to, I want to, I like a quick turnaround and it's, it's important that what I, I'm trying to always print the in the United States um, and not go overseas. Because if I see something that, ooh, you know what, this is going to be spot on, um, I, I want to get it in the market as soon as I can.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Having written some books, I know how long it can take. And so um, yeah. maybe that length of time is no longer suitable to the way that we're consuming media. So being mm-hmm. able to print domestically, if that can sh- you know, shave off some of those months, um, yep. it may very well be worth whatever extra money it might cost. Um, to do so um, so that's great and I want to make sure we get to some of your recommendations because you have some great things to recommend Um, so the first thing that you wanted to recommend was print
1: paste for thickening dyes I have no idea what this is so explain okay okay so people oftentimes work with fabric paint Uh, the thing about fabric paint is it doesn't necessarily penetrate the fibers it sits on top of the fabric Um, however if you want to work with dyes, which just have, oh, they're just so luscious. Um, and, but you want to treat dyes like paint. So for instance, if you want to stamp with it, if you want to pull it through a screen, a Thermofax screen, if you want to stencil with it, that dye is just too runny. You've got to thicken it with a, with a print paste, a thickener. And Procyon, um, excuse me, Prochemical and dye already has all of the ingredients mixed together to what's called a print paste. And it looks like like a grand, it's granular. So it looks like salt or a little darker, a little yellower than that, but you mix it with water and it thickens and becomes like a, a real thick syrup. So then you can just take your dye powders and, and then just, uh, treat it as you would, um, fabric painting, but you can get layers, you can get depth, you can, there's just, it just, the world, your world just opens up. So one of the things I've always make sure I'm stopped on in my own wet studio is print paste. Um,
0: Okay. That's super. So turn turn dye into paint. I love it. Now I totally get it. Um, And then you wanted to recommend jelly plates for mono printing. And I'm thinking that I've before made um, gelatin, uh, like Uh super concentrated gelatin that you make in like a pie plate and then you can print with it. And I'm assuming this is a commercial product that's like that.
1: Yes. What's fun about the jelly plates, the actual gelatin plates is that oftentimes once you start using them a lot, they frisger and crack. And so you can get some pretty organic monoprints, um, using that. However, uh, several years ago they came out with a jelly plate, which is basically, oh, I don't even know what kind of rubbery polyurethane, something, whatever substance it is, but it acts just like, uh, a gelatin plate would, in that you can create monoprints with it and just rinse it off and reuse it and never have to worry about making a batch of, uh, Of gelatin, and it doesn't
0: have that weird smell that I don't know when you make the gelatin. You're like, hmm, this smells a little. Yeah, and
1: and I've learned this the hard way. It can mold in your refrigerator. So
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I I had fun doing it though. It was really cool. I did it with my artist group, and it was yeah, it was cool. We we had a really good night doing it. That's Um,
1: awesome.
0: That's cool. And then the last thing was um, a special foot and guide for your.
1: Bernina, it's a 97D oh, quarter-inch foot. Oh my gosh, this has a life. This has been a life changer for me. I I finally upgraded my um, my machine, and I got uh, I went to Meisner Sewing um, here in Northern California, and I got a a 790. And with it, everybody was telling me, especially Terry Lucas, you've got to get the 97D foot. And it just you get perfect, perfect spot on quarter inch seams every time. So for those of us where I'm not a traditional piecer and, and, and the seam rippers, my best friend, this thing, it's just sure, a sure thing every time. Um, and so I just, I love it. And I just had some kids over last week and they, I trying to get them to get quilting. And I thought, (coughs) you know, I need something with as little frustration as possible. I said, so let's throw on that 9070 so they can, um, see what it's like to, to peace and feel accomplished so
0: nice that sounds great yeah i'm i am far from being the perfect quarter inch seam girl so that is hard for me to believe <laughs> well yeah i'm gonna upgrade to Bernina at some point my sewing machine is kind of slumming it in comparison so <laughs> oh. well yeah, oh, yeah.
1: that's this cool um love- well
0: pokey thank you so much for taking the time to be on the washing ups podcast i really enjoyed talking thank with you, you so much
1: really yeah. appreciate
0: it abby this was great and you've been listening to the Walsheen Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshienapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was brought to you by Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio. Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio offers a contemporary look at a traditional craft, Working as an artist creating one-of-a-kind hooked rugs, Deanne also offers rug-hooking kits, patterns, supplies, workshops, and lessons, both online at www.hookingrugs.com and at her studio in downtown Amherst, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Her original works are in the Canadian Museum of Civilization, the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, and many private and public collections. The author of seven books about rug-hooking and creativity, Deanne has made her website, blog, and YouTube channels a beautiful resource for rug hookers internationally. Visit her at hookingrugs.com and use that coupon code ABBY, A-B-B-Y, all lowercase, to receive 15% off your first order. Thanks, Deanne. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.